Hello and welcome to Cloud Automation Weekly. My name is Thorsten Höger and I'm here to talk about automating your AWS cloud infrastructure. Today I'm joined again by Michele Van Joppi to talk about monitoring his code. Michele, welcome to the show again. Hi. For folks who are just meeting you for the first time or the first time after our first episode, um, could you share a bit about who you are and what you do? I am a product manager at Lumigo, where uh, we uh, we work on uh, monitoring everything that is serverless or containerized workloads on AWS. And uh, my passion is to automatically trace everything that can be traced. That sounds perfect, especially the automatic, because I love automation. That's why I'm calling this podcast the Cloud Automation <laughs> Podcast. So, yeah. So about monitoring, I think one of the obvious questions that I hear a lot. And I'm not sure I know the difference. What's the difference between monitoring and observability? It's a good question. And it's a question that has been puzzling the industry for a very long while. The, um, I have some sort of irreverent view on the matter. And um, the, historically, we have started talking about observability mostly as a marketing ploy to differentiate a new generation of vendors to, uh, from the old one. In reality, one of the, the ways that one can describe the difference between monitoring and observability, and it's the way that I personally prefer, is that monitoring is the act of collecting data and processing it in useful ways to understand what is the health status of your system. And observability is the property of a system that is adequately monitored. That sounds really cool. And it sounds non-marketing style. So this is really like this is what it does. I totally get it. It's like, we need a new name because it's not Nagios. So that ends basically. There are also other, uh, there's also other meanings of the word monitoring. Sometimes I come across uh, people that think that monitoring is actually collecting and processing time series. So monitoring is about metrics and logging is about logs. Um, I, I, maybe that was true uh, a few decades back. But uh, as the complexity of our software grows, especially in, uh, in cloud-native environments, we uh, process different types of, uh, well, signals, telemetry signals. So besides the uh, very traditional logs and metrics that we know, love, know and love, uh, there is distributed tracing, which is my favorite all. Uh, there is profiling, more and more production profiling. So the fact of um, uh, sampling, usually, uh, what your CPU, your memory locations, your wait time is doing at regular intervals so that you have an idea of where the hotspots in your code are. There is a real user monitoring. So effectively uh, tracing, but from the browser or, or a mobile application, which um, I differentiate from uh, distributed tracing because of significant technical differences in the way you do that. They are, of course, correlated, but in non-trivial ways. And, uh, and more and more, one could, uh, could say, for example, that um, attaching a, a step debugger in production is an art of observability. It's just one that is observing the system, not as a black box, like we do by collecting telemetry and then reconcile the model we have of how the system is supposed to behave and the data we see, but it's actually looking into it. To some extent, the... Um, the entire trajectory that we've had in, in the industry about observability has gone further and further towards more and more detail. When, for example, you look at uh, you look at logs, you have a timestamp, you have a message. Sometimes if the log message is structured, you have key value pairs that give you some attributes and context. Um, it would allow you only 
to, to, to know about things that happened that you thought about, you collected an event. The same is very much true with uh, monitoring, so metrics. I did it myself. <laughs> the time series collection. Uh, you will only have information about things that you thought about, especially the, the custom time series ones that you use to uh, to collect business level information, like how many mortgages has my application collected so far. When we start moving towards distributed tracing, uh, we, where um, the information you collect is dependent on a library of instrumentations very often, especially the, the automated approaches. And uh, the more we get into uh, profiling and uh, we're going to start debugging, then more and more, the um, the data, the telemetry you collect, will surprise you. They get richer and richer. They get more and more complex to collect. And uh, more and more, they have nuggets of information in there that will genuinely surprise you. The classic use case, the classic surprise you have with distributed tracing is that, oh, I didn't know that my production system is fetching some data from QA. And that is not something that unless you really go thinking about it very hard or you step into that when reading code, you would know. But distributed tracing, by its very nature of effectively collecting and correlating inputs and outputs into your application, that's what it does. Yeah, that reminds me of my first um, interaction with tracing instead of metrics collection or, or logging. It was like, I had no idea my application was doing a for each on a query result. So I, I had a database call doing, get me a list and then get me every item in it. And it was doing this for every call to the website. We're like, that's not a good idea. And logging will never show it. Which object relational mapper were you using at the time? That this is a classic JPA surprise. Yeah, you would guess so, but it was calling a MongoDB. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but right. yes, that's exactly the things that, that <laughs> happen in JPA things and like, oh, that was not a plan. No. And, and that's exactly the difference. You never see this in logging because they never think about it. So you don't have it in your logs. I think MDCs or the message domain context were a part of adding more information to logs that are not naturally there. But it's still like, yeah, you, you only know what you think about you will need later. It will add context only to logs that you thought of correcting. Exactly. And the thing is, only after the fact, or it always relies on reproducing things. So like, oh, we get an error, we switch to debugging uh, logging, and then we replicate the error and see in the log what's happening. But it's never like what did happen in the past. Yeah, That's no right. idea. Because I so often hear uh, customers saying, yeah, yeah but we, we can just activate debug logging. Yeah, but it's after the fact. That's too late. If you can also turn back time, that's going to work. One of the aspects that I would like to touch upon, um, and uh, I have a pet peeve against object relational mappers. I think they solve the wrong problem, uh, especially the, the lack of familiarity with the database so that you, you hide a lot of complexity you don't understand behind a, a seemingly simple API. It's precisely this. The, um, as a developer, you think of uh, interacting with the database through simple operations. Like if you think Spring Data with... Uh, with the repositories, simple, right? And then behind your, your object relational mapper, there is a monster like JPA with all types of caching and optimizations and all types of things. And then the interactions that you do with the database look nothing like your mental model of how you are interacting with it. And there is all possible types of data inconsistency and latency spikes and uh, lack of optimization that people give for granted because their meta model is, I am saving this in the database, in the reality, there is so much going on. And this is one of the classic benefits of actually doing distributed tracing. 
because the symmetry tracing done right is going both to tell you all these simple interactions the JPA, for example, will compose for you, as well as providing a span, which is the, the unit of, uh, of telemetry for distributed tracing that will say, you, you want to save this object, and then under it, there are spans for all the different single interactions of the database, and that, that resulted in 15 queries. Yeah, that's exactly to see what's going on. And you, you can also look into performance, like why is this API call slow? And you think it's about connecting to service X. And then you see after looking at the traces, service X is just not relevant at all to the timing because the worst thing I've seen in a project was one API call was doing one database query. It was only one database query. And it has 27 joins. Like, yeah, that's that's not possible to be fast. <laughs> so, um, and that's the thing you see. And then you optimize the right things because it doesn't matter if you optimize part of the API call that only takes 5% of the time. You need to optimize the 90% thing. And what about the queries that they actually behave in a very civilized fashion in QA and then in production turns out that your application is backing up the database in its own heap. That was actually the beginning of my career in performance. The first escalation that uh, that I had to, to face at SAP was uh, somebody doing uh, having a very simple data set in QA and then they deploy the application in production. And all of a sudden, they were downloading gigabytes of data from the database. And the JVM was not happy. That happens with uh, ORMs. You, you pick one item and you have the whole graph um, in memory, which is never a problem with your uh, development data set. Yes. But to be, to be perfectly fair, it was a cool database backup solution, however unintentional. <laughs> yeah, but that's exactly the thing. So some things you need to observe in production you need to observe them after the fact or look at them after the fact. Race conditions are very hard to reproduce. You only see them, oh, there was a race condition, but you cannot provoke one normally. Technically, you, you cannot even prove that there was a race condition in many cases. Just assume there was one because some executions that should look alike in reality have the orders of events switched around. Yeah. So And, and these things... So I, I think that the, the most important thing why you should go to tracing instead of plain logging is just, yeah, you, you have no time machine. You cannot go back in time and see what was happening. And being able to reproduce errors is just not as simple as we assumed it to be. Yeah, it's uh, effectively, I mean, the SWT tracing is effectively log, logging on automated log on steroids, where also the logs are related with one another in terms of effectively which one caused which other. And um, it's, um, I, I think by now we have gotten to the point where, at least in the cloud native world, it is understood that distributed tracing is absolutely necessary, but it's uh, still hard to actually get it to work well. It's something that requires, unlike logging, where you just call a simple API and you get your your log, and effectively it's like making a, a console.print that we all do every day in, the, in debugging, Distributed tracing still requires a level of expertise uh, that is very, very high. So you need to understand how instrumentations work, need to understand how the trace context is passed around. That is the fact that in order to, to know that that call to a database is happening because of the HTTP request you receive, you need effectively to, to propagate in the, in the context of your application, make it a Golan context, make it a thread local in Java, uh, something in the in the in the event loop of 
many ways, and each language looks different, that actually will pass along the relationship, the causality of relationship between the spans. And um, it's hard. It's it's honestly hard. It's getting marginally better because of open telemetry, where there is a, a corpus of instrumentations that uh, that work reasonably well. But uh, still, even to get the basic setup to work, is it requires a level of expertise that is very high. And uh, that's why I have such a passion for uh, automatically tracing things, because it's both super important, super useful. It really cuts down your mean time to recovery and the frustration that you prove when the, all the stressful situation of having outages. And it also simplifies your life. It democratizes uh, one of uh, the most novel and most powerful ways of uh, of monitoring we have nowadays. Yeah, so, so let's directly um, dive into this part. So yeah, observability, as you said, is hard because you need to do a lot of setup if you configure everything on your own. So what are we talking about when we're talking about observability as code or automatic tracing? So how does this look like in reality? Um, there is a very large variety of ways of setting up the collection of logs or the collection of matrices. None of these ways is particularly ergonomic. The um, What you would like to say is just get my logs over there. In reality, with pretty much every infrastructure code solution, you have to do effectively kind of assembly level monitoring work to say, yeah, get the content of that file that I know contains my logs and push it to that endpoint with this type of indexing. It's it's really low level. This is true for uh, logs. This is true for metrics. This is doubly true for distributed tracing because um, most of the distributed tracing infrastructure actually lives within your application. There are some, uh, some cases like server meshes with it kind of part of the infrastructure to some extent but 90% of the time that they come across, it's something that le really leaves with your code where the tracer becomes a dependency to your application. And um, you spend a significant amount of time uh, getting it to work and uh, um, a significant amount of time keeping it working as your application evolves and you need to have more metrics, different instrumentations, uh, different or more logs. Or the price that you pay for not having this constant vigilance is that when you need the data, you don't. So it's um, I, I love the idea of having monitoring as part of the infrastructure's code. And part of my daily work is, is precisely there. But I still find that it is a, a way too low level concern. We are still working with uh, primitives in the way that we specify monitoring. That is effectively assembly level. It's like writing C code when in reality you would like some prologue and just declare trace me that and it works. Yeah, even if you're um, in in AWS and you have all the technology things solved for you, even in CDK you still do like yeah, give me the error count metric from a lambda function and create an alarm on that. And this is my alarm action. This is my okay action. I'm doing that for every lambda function. Like there needs to be a default. Like just set up alarms for all my Lambda functions? Why isn't this there? Because so... there, there are at least two things that make it difficult. Uh, the first is the paradox of choice. You have so many different ways to produce telemetry and so many places where you could put it that uh, it's hard to find two people that have the same idea of what the default would look like. 
Um, and uh, uh, the second one is because beyond a relatively basic level of monitoring and alerting that is dependent on what technology you use, uh, a lot of it is business level. I'll, I'll give you an example. It's never a good case when your Lambda function times out, right? So you could automatically say that I want an alert rule that if my Lambda function is edging towards 90% of the execution time, maybe you adjust the, the, the settings. The same is with memory consumption. When your Lambda function is teetering all the time towards the, uh, the out-of-memory boundary, maybe it's something that you need to adjust. But beyond effectively the golden signals of uh, using the, the terminology of uh, Google SRE, uh, there isn't so much more that you can actually automate in a way that is programmatic and a priori that you can encode in constructs that do not need significant configuration. When we talk about the golden signals, we're talking about um, effectively red. So the, the rate of requests, the um, uh, error rate or ratio. So how many errors do I get in total over a time period or in percentage, depending how you define, for example, your service level, service level objectives and uh, the duration, how long does it take? Usually, the faster, the better, right? And then there is the fourth golden signal, which is called saturation, uh, which is a measure of how much more workload could your deployment take, which is very much related with scale. But all of this is still very technical and still very low level, and it will not really explain you why the amount of mortgages that your application has, has processed has cratered. Because in reality, the impact of an issue, whether you should wake up at three in the morning or can it wait until the third coffee tomorrow, is seldom related directly with technical metrics. If a database is crashing, but nobody's using it, should you wake up in the middle of the night? No, right? But if a database has a 5% error rate, but it's Black Friday and those 5% are orders that do not get to your to your fulfillment center, then you have a problem that is worth is worth uh, um, tackling, which leads us to the next aspect of telemetry. And it is that telemetry needs context. Because you see, that when somebody looks at an, for example, error metric, and your application is erroring out 90% of the times, it's bad. Right? No, no reputable application should do that. But is it important? And is it urgent? That is very much a function of what is the application doing on behalf of whom? If your 90% errors is happening on Saturday night in the development environment, who cares? If your 5% error rate is happening on Black Friday and that service is the, the checkout service deployed in the USA, then you should jump really fast to handle it. So it's, uh, it's all this contextualization of uh, where is the telemetry coming from that allows you actually to understand what is the impact of issues. That is an aspect that can reasonably well, that the context, contextualization reasonably well, be automated infrastructure as code, but it's not yet. You don't find so much automation, for example, in setting Prometheus labels out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, you may provide, uh, so you as an engineering organization on AWS may use, for example, AWS tags to say, uh, which what is this application doing? And... Uh, uh, who is operating it, what is the team, and uh, if there are issues, is it critical or not. That information needs to be effectively annotated with the telemetry so that you can use it, for example, in routing alert rules 
or muting alert notifications or sending them to the emergency response team. All the pieces are there, but there is so much work needed to glue them together that is more or less trivial work, but it's work that is not done out of the box and that degrades the uh, the experience in uh, in uh, doing infrastructure as code. Yeah, totally. So I think what, what you mean by context or you mentioned with context is it needs to also integrate business level metrics. It is um, or or context, business context, business metrics. As you said, if an error occurs on a database but nobody's using it, I don't care. So I, I remember um, working in the financial industry, and now I have customers in the financial industry, and and they report the same. Basically, for applications that are used by the trading desk, normally you don't need any monitoring because they're so fast. So the traders will call you within. 10 seconds or five seconds of an outage, always faster than your monitor. So you, you basically don't need it because they immediately see the impact of every problem. So they will call you. So they are there, you're monitoring. I have an ethical problem outsourcing the monitoring to my end users. Yeah, but the thing is, so this experience needs to be part of your monitoring. So this is part of your monitoring. It's not my application is crashing or whatever. They have problems before it crashes, before your monitoring um, raises an alarm. So your monitoring is incomplete. So this needs to be part of your monitoring. And obviously not them calling you, but seeing what they do and factoring in their business context, how to detect errors before, yes, my application is at 90% CPU. That's too late. Most of the times, um, you know, the, the, the reference context is for kings. It comes from a, a, a very old Star Trek episode. And um, in, in, in context, the quote means that uh, people in power do not necessarily need to follow the laws because sometimes you need to bend the laws to, to fit reality. And the same applies to alert notifications. Your application is crashing, bad. But do you care? <laughs> that depends what the application is doing and on behalf of whom. So this is the, um, the contextualization of the impact of application issues. And that's very important because if you have too many alerts that all are treated equal, you will just overload your response team and they will just ignore alarms because, yeah, it's another alarm. It's another alarm. And they yeah, will just not react when it's really important. What you're relating, what are, um, the, the term for this is alert fatigue. Yeah. It is the, uh, the psychological response of uh, uh, people that are constantly under stress to, to discount the, um, the further signals of risk. And uh, it is a very common outcome of uh, another term with a funny name, an alert storm. That is, if your system is saying all the time that something is burning, you will stop caring about it. In, um, in Italy, we have an old story about uh, a boy that was crying wolf. And then at some point when the wolf finally came, nobody listened to the boy and uh, all the sheep of the boy got, uh, got eaten. That is what is happening with alert fatigue. And uh, that is uh, the, the fact that our observability primitives are so low level, it actually makes the alert fatigue worse. Because unless you spend a lot of effort in finally tuning your alerts so that they fire only when it's, uh, it's important, at the risk of those alerts not firing when something important is happening, because effectively you reduce the sensitivity in many cases, then uh, you end up not seeing things. And uh, on the one hand, you have the alert fatigue where your system is, is 
crying wolf all the time. You don't believe, don't believe in it anymore. And sometimes you have false negatives where your system tells you everything is fine. But in reality, people are running for the hills and everything is on fire. And uh, at the, both of these phenomena actually uh, cost you trust in the monitoring system. And uh, trust is the ultimate currency of a monitoring system. Because in reality, what a monitoring system is, is it's a measurement device. Specifically, it's a measurement device for the health of what is being monitored. And if your spanner on one day tells you that the same soda can is 20 centimeters wide and on the other 10, are you going to believe that spanner? No, right? And the yeah. same happens over and over and over with monitoring system. It's um, <laughs> sometimes you find the, the very sad situation where people are spending yeah. top dollars for uh, state-of-the-art monitoring systems, which then in reality the operation people don't use because they don't trust it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I think I, about the alert storm, I always think about, I, I see it with every customer uh, using Java. Yeah, do e.printStackTrace for every exception. So what happened? All the logs are completely full of exceptions and nobody cares because yeah, it's an exception. The name exception says it's not something you expected. It's an exceptional situation. But it's so common in the logs that nobody cares about exception. This is uh, the broken window syndrome. The, uh, it's from the experience, I believe it was in New York in, uh, the, the, towards the 80s, where uh, the fact that something was broken made more, more things likely to be broken because of disregard. It's um, in monitoring, that's, for example, a monitoring system that tells you stuff that is not important, like exceptions in, in TCP retries. It's going to be retried. Tell me only when you really didn't manage to get the data across, right? But it's actually really hard to write application code that uh, logs and errors in the right ways. This is getting even even, even more harder because, um, I mean, within the relatively safe confines of a process, in particular when you use uh, excellent runtimes like the Java Virtual Machine or or the, the Node V8 or CPython. I mean, those, those things don't break. Your code does. Those things seldom break. But the moment that you start putting networking and input-output in general in the mix, then it gets so much harder to get stuff to work reliably. The, um, for example, most of the time, people get surprised by figuring out that the default timeout of, I don't know, the request library in Python is different than what they thought. They find it out the hard way, stuff hanging, hanging way too long, and uh, since all those settings for reliability and resilience are not in front of your face, but they are hidden between defaults and stuff, then you don't think about it. Moreover, with the um, in, we went the, the, the entire cloud native industry is more or less married with the idea of microservices. Some vo some critical voices are uh, are have been raised and and, and keep uh, being raised over time. But um, we to, to be candid. Uh, a lot of the distribution and the complexity that comes from it in our systems is not warranted. You could have the same with a much simpler architecture. And uh, given the fact that distributed systems have a lot of networking in between, you started trading uh, relatively easy library calls within your single Java machine with sending packets of over hundreds of thousands of lines of software and firmware and a whole bunch of hardware and cabling. And uh, yeah, stuff goes wrong. And it goes wrong in ways that is really hard to troubleshoot. Yeah, and it's the same uh, you described earlier with the ORMs. 
it's hidden behind a facade. It's so easy. Like, I'm doing a method call. No, you're not. You're not yeah. doing a method call. But you're not doing just a method call. <laughs> yeah, it's not just a method call, what you're doing. So it has a lot of things. It It's a method call. What should break? Everything. Everything. Break. Everything. It's just a matter of when and how often. Yeah. Like, it's a method call. It, it, it will just be yes or no. No. It could be timeout. It could be I.O. exception. It could be everything. <laughs> That's... um. The um, when you look at, for example, the the way that we teach programming nowadays, we are um, I, I see both a trend towards people wanting to to learn fast because while our technology is growing more and more complex with more and more levels of abstraction, so you need to learn more and more, and you want to learn fast and be very productive. So effectively, we're doing happy path learning where you understand what is going on when everything is fine. And then good luck finding out the infinite many ways that things can blow up. Yeah. So wrapping up and seeing to the future, where should we go with observability as good? I am very much in favor of a declarative approach. The same way that uh, you you go to AWS and say, yeah, give me an SQSQ, the same should be able to say, trace me that application. That is pretty much what I do day in and day out. The, um, so on the one hand, provide higher level a uh, higher value, uh, less thinking, less decision primitives to get your applications monitored the, the best way you can. We also need to, to do some soul searching in the industry about uh, which type of telemetry, which type of monitoring we need, depending on what the application does and how important it is. There is no way to, to, to find out, oh, this is the way you need to monitor your application. No, it's always trade-offs. It always depends. There are some sane defaults, and in the case of in the case of doubt, error for more monitoring, not less. But um, yeah, that uh, there there is uh, there is much work to be done. Automation, it's still nowhere good enough in my eyes. In uh, in general, there are some areas of excellence, but in general, it's uh, it's uh, way too much work to get anything monitored even remotely uh, properly. And uh, to some extent, there is also a um, a gap in the knowledge that the average practitioner has in terms of how to define error conditions for application. So that we, we discussed it earlier in the podcast that there are some sane defaults uh, depending on, uh, on the technology, but in reality, those tend to be relatively lower level. There is still a lot that can go wrong that those sane defaults will not, uh, will not catch for you. And uh, uh, what I would like to see is to provide some... Um, higher level constructs, not only to collect telemetry, but also to define error conditions. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And obviously, if it's declarative and by code, it could be integrated in your infrastructure as code. So it is part of the application. And we go more and more into this thing that there is no difference in this is infrastructure, this is application, this is monitoring. It's all part of your application. It's all part of your code. It's just different facets of the thing you're building, but it's not different jobs and different tooling and different responsibilities. Now, th th thank you for, for bringing me here. There is uh, another of the things that, uh, you know, like that makes me pretty sad is that um, the observability of our applications should be a functional requirement of the application itself. Because if you don't know if the application is working well, should you trust it in production? In reality, we never do treat our applications like that or very seldom. The um, there is a lot that can be done in terms of technology monitoring 
and uh, not enough in terms of expressing uh, business level concerns with monitoring. And that is where both as practitioners in the industry, as well as technology providers, that's where we need to do more. Because the new generation of developers that are overwhelmed in understanding everything from uh, how Linux fills in a container into running applications on Java, into talking over a number of TCP sockets or a service mesh on Kubernetes, uh, running tons of containers that may or may not be in the same availability zone, or let alone the region. It's, um, it's a daunting thing to do. And uh, I think that the bugginess of, uh, of software, at least in my empirical experience, is increasing, both because we are using less proven, less hardened, and more complex technologies, but also because the new practitioners have so much more to learn all at once while, for example, I had 20 years to get familiar with all these things as they were made. My son, when he gets out of the college, is not going to have that. He's going to be thrown in, in the cold water between 10 levels of, of abstraction of stuff that he was not taught in the university. Yeah, totally get this. I cannot imagine seeing AWS for the first time now with 250 services, with a lot of features and everything. When I logged in first, my, my first time logging into AWS, all the services were on the front page because it was like 10. And right. so, and so I could learn it one by one. And now it's, this is AWS. Here's two million lines and, of documentation. And, and they were also simpler. There was much more opinionation about, you know, the stuff that you need and the stuff that you don't. And now over time, everybody has a different need. So even simple, conceptually simple services are growing so much more complex. I, 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 don't, I don't envy the next generation. Yeah, we're all talking about the 17 ways of running containers on AWS. <laughs> it's, a, it's more than that. <laughs> it's more than that. It's more than that. Okay. Yeah, I think this has been great. Uh, where can people find more about you online? I, um, well, I occasionally uh, come to your podcast and we have a nice chat. Uh, you and I are having a webinar this week to, to, to have a look at uh, how I think that the security tracing should work with AWS CDK. Um, there is my work is on display every day on uh, uh, lumigo.io. We have uh, we have a cool blog. We uh, we have a cool product. You should try it. I am uh, the proud author of uh, both the Lumigo Kubernetes Operator, which is the most automated Kubernetes operator for distributed tracing that you will find out there, as well as the Lumigo CDK constructs. Same level of automation, different framework. Uh, yeah, so give it a try. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for joining me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Thorsten Hüger, and I hope you join me again next time for Cloud Automation Weekly.